Well, Hillcrest family and friends, what that sweet time of worship. I know that you're like me. You are so thankful for the musical leadership and talent that we have here at Hillcrest. And thank you, Brad Woods and the entire team who've gathered together here with me at the Nine Mile Campus. I'm thankful for the stage players. I'm thankful for our technical players that you, you know, never see, particularly in environments like these, the guys that are strictly behind the scenes, and yet they're here, they're faithful, they're energetic, they're enthusiastic, and they're such a blessing, not only to their pastor, but to all of us. Thank you guys for your valuable contributions to the worship of God today, and I hope you have worshiped the Lord. I want you to take a Bible, and hopefully you have one with you. Because we are continuing to preach the expositional scriptures uh, of the Word of God. We're going through them uh, from text to text, preaching uh, a series of messages really in these days. It's a little bit scattered, but I'm trying to focus on the concept of courage. Things that can remind us that we need not fear, that we need to be courageous and bold in our faith, even in very uncertain times. And today we're going to be in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, Matthew's the first gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and find the 11th chapter of Matthew as we deal for a few minutes this morning with the subject, our struggle with doubt. As we do that today, I want to remind you that you can connect with a pastor here at Hillcrest all throughout the morning. Uh, our pastors are on call and they're locked and loaded and ready to minister to our people. And if you've got a prayer need today, if you've got a decision that you want to talk to somebody about, if you need guidance or wisdom or just encouragement, you need somebody to know what's going on in your life and to pray with you, then you can send an email to prayer at hillcrestchurch.com, prayer at hillcrestchurch.com, and pastors are standing by even as I'm preaching the word this morning, and they'll be around uh, for a good while after the service is over today, ready to engage with you. So let us know how we can be a blessing to your life this morning. Matthew chapter 11 uh, is where we'll be for a few minutes again today. If there's one thing that indeed we all tend to have in common is that most of us anyway, if not all of us, sometimes tend to struggle with doubt, particularly as it relates to our faith. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. Sometimes I have trouble really trusting people who look at me and say, you know what, I've never doubted anything about my Christian faith. Many of the greatest heroes of the Bible struggled with doubt from time to time. Abraham struggled with doubt. Moses certainly struggled with doubt. Men like Gideon, David, Solomon, Elijah, Thomas that we looked at a few weeks ago who had walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for three calendar years was a man who struggled with doubt. All of these are heavyweights. They're big hitters. And many of them heard God speak like out loud. They heard the voice of God directly. They saw visions of God or angelic visions of heaven straight from the throne of God. And yet many of them, like many of us, struggled with doubt. Have the clouds of uncertainty and doubt, particularly in these critical days, drifted across the horizons of your faith, doubts about God, doubts about what God's up to, 
Doubts about the silence of God in your life? Have you ever had doubts about Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ? Have you ever had doubts about the Bible, the truthfulness, the integrity of the Word of God? Have you ever had doubts about what really is going to happen when it comes time to close your eyes and die? The gospel writers give us, in the pages of God's Word, one of the greatest examples of doubt from one of the least likely sources, and that is, of course, John the Baptist, the divinely appointed forerunner of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How ironic that a spiritual thoroughbred like John the Baptist was having a tug of war in his own spirit about, of all things, the true identity of the Christ that he had come to proclaim. Matthew records it for us in his gospel, chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, where the scripture says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look? For another. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you and tell you that I've always found that to be one of the most unexpected questions that I've found anywhere in the Bible. Because when you think about it, John was one of the boldest, most confident prophetic types in all of the history of the people of God. Maybe the most confident personality that we find anywhere in the Bible. And yet, At this stage, both of his own life and at this stage of the ministry, the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, John's mind is clouded. His mind and heart are divided. He has a divided mind, a divided heart, a divided spirit. There's a fuzziness. And he sends question to Jesus that's just loaded with uncertainty. Are you the one who was to come? Or do we need to look for another? And I think that we can all identify with some of the possible reasons why John, even a man like John, would ask a question like that. First of all, I want you to notice this morning that doubts are often caused by the pain of our circumstances. Isn't that right? Usually those times when your faith uh, is clouded by doubt, You're in the middle of a painful life moment, a difficult life moment. You're in a pressure cooker, so to speak. And I think that was true for John. To understand the source of John's doubt, it's important for us to first understand the context in which the statement here is made. Matthew doesn't tell us immediately here in chapter 11, but he will later on that John is in fact a prisoner. You get that because he does say that John is in prison. It's just not until later that he tells us why. And he's been placed under arrest by the the Roman governor of Galilee, Herod Antipas. And he'd been arrested and thrown into a dungeon there at the fortress Machaerus prison high atop a hill overlooking the Dead Sea in the southern part of the region of Palestine. Not long after Jesus was baptized, John had started to publicly criticize Herod in his preaching. And that's always a challenging thing to do, to speak truth to power, particularly truth to political power. 
You'll sometimes get in trouble with the political authorities. You'll sometimes get into trouble with the people of God when you start speaking truth to political power. But John was a courageous type, and he wasn't afraid of anybody. And he began to criticize Herod because of some of Herod's personal practices, namely as it related to his marriage relationship. Herod had divorced his own wife in order to marry Herodias, who was the ex-wife of his brother Philip. John, or Matthew rather, tells us about that in chapter 14. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, this was embarrassing to Herod and otherwise uh, a great admirer of John. Once John had died, the Bible says that Herod was grieved over the death of John, and yet he's the one that put him in jail to begin with. He found that the only way that he could shut John up was to lock him up, and that's what he did. And most of you all know, don't you, how quickly life can change. Life can just change on a dime. I mean, we're we're living in the center of something that was unexpected and something very much unwelcomed, something that most of us did not see coming. This kind of thing is the thing that happens in third world countries. This is the kind of thing that happens in the other hemisphere, on the other side of the world. And we never saw it affecting us. And just that quickly, many of us were going strong one minute and shut up the next, bound in, stifled and suffering in many different kinds of ways. And just as our lives have been turned upside down by an unexpected pandemic, John found his life unexpectedly shaken up as well. John was a very popular, roving preacher. He was used to freedom, just like we are. He was used to coming and going as he was led by the Spirit of God. And he opened up his mouth, and whenever he began to speak, people were just naturally attracted to him, and they They congregated by the hundreds and by the hundreds, and now he's in solitary confinement. All of that freedom is lost, and Herod's castle on a hill had become for John the Baptist a dungeon of doubt. That's what painful, unexpected circumstances can do to you. They can cause you to question either your faith in general or particular elements of your faith. Most of the time, these are things that you thought were bedrock solid in your life. But all it takes is one upside down experience and the clouds of doubt begin to roll in. The most difficult and challenging conversation that I've ever had with a person in my entire ministry, maybe even in my entire life, came a few years ago when a man that I did not know called and made an appointment to come in and visit with me. And when he did, it didn't take long for me to realize that this was a man who was upside down, angry with God. Question after question, he fired at me over and over again, like volleys out of a cannon, all of them beginning with the single word, why? And all of them having something to do with the actions or the motivations or the inaction of God in his own life. And when I finally got a chance to get a word in edgewise and ask a few questions of my own, a couple of things became very clear. One was that this man was someone very well steeped in the Word of God. He was well read when it came to biblical truth. 
In fact, I learned later on that he'd been formally trained in theology. (laughs) He'd been an undergraduate major in biblical studies during his college year. And so this wasn't a guy that knew enough Bible just to be dangerous. This, This was a guy who actually had a very solid grasp on biblical theology. But a second thing that I learned was that just a few months earlier, that man had lost a child. He lost a son in a tragic accident that took place at home. And he was still, months later, mired in deep-seated, gut-wrenching grief, which explains why all of my attempts to answer his earlier questions just kind of bounced off. They were all of my, you know, sophisticated attempts to answer his questions theologically just were deflected. They were rebuffed because I wasn't telling him anything that he didn't already know. But the pain of his personal experience brought everything about his faith system into question. Everything that he had believed about God was now on the brink of collapse. This man who for many years had lived in the bright light of the gospel, somebody who knew the religious language, somebody that probably had given counsel to people just like him years earlier, now found himself living like John, in a dungeon of doubt. And it wasn't hard to understand why. It's often been said that the greatest opportunity for faith is the birth of a baby. And the greatest opportunity to doubt is whenever a baby dies. Isn't that right? I mean, your circumstances might be different from that. But I'm telling you, people can get shaken up by life circumstances, unexpected adversity, a whole lot less severe than that, my friend. In whatever time of grief or isolation you might find yourself today, it's not at all uncommon to pose questions that you'd probably never otherwise pose when the sun's shining and the flowers are in bloom and there's money in the bank and everybody's working and two cars in the garage and both cars are running and the roof is fine and it's not blown off. I mean, when things are good, we tend not to ask deep-seated questions of God. It's when the unexpected happens. And the lesson of John is that it's no sin to ask serious questions to God and to pose serious questions about God as long as those questions are part of your desire to understand truth, to chase after truth, as long as you don't allow your doubts to separate you from God. Doubt can be an instrument of a growing faith. Doubts are often caused by painful circumstances, but notice also that doubts are often caused by our disappointment with God. And disappointment with God is usually the first byproduct of our painful circumstances. Physical struggles often lead to spiritual struggles, don't they? Where we question God or at least wonder what God is up to or why God is silent. From what we know about John in Scripture, it's rather difficult, frankly, to see him as a doubting type. This is why this is kind of surprising for many of us who study the Bible especially when it came to the person of Jesus. 
I mean, we might anticipate that he would have some spiritual doubts about particular matters as it related to theology or as it related to God, but he doesn't seem to have any doubts early in his life about who Jesus is or what Christ had come to do. I mean, this was the prophet who had been set apart by God from the time of his birth to be the divine setup figure to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah of Israel, the divinely prophesied Savior of Israel and Savior of the world, the anointed one of God. This was a John the Baptist. The first time we're introduced to John the Baptist, he's in his mother Elizabeth's womb, and he leaps in the womb when Mary, a pregnant Mary who has the Son of God literally inside of her comes walking into the room, and a pregnant Mary and a pregnant Elizabeth come together, and the Bible says John leapt in the womb. He recognized that he was in the presence of glory even before he was born. This was a John who not only preached about the coming of Christ, this was a John who baptized Jesus. And when he baptized Jesus, he'd heard the voice coming out of heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove at that wonderful experience there in the Jordan River. I mean, this was a John who was so humble, he refused at first the honor of baptizing Jesus, declaring that he was not even worthy to stoop down and unlace uh, 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 the laces of his sandals, the straps of his sandals, much less baptize the Lord. This was the prophet who pointed to Jesus and declared unequivocally, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was the humble servant who, when the disciples complained that the crowds were thinning and the congregation was going over to Jesus as Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist was the humble servant who said, he must increase and I must decrease. So it seems like the early John really had a solid grasp on the identity and the the nature of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet now, later on, months after the fact, he finds himself alone and isolated and behind bars. And there's an obvious disappointment ringing from his spirit. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we look for somebody else? I mean, part of the problem was that the role that Jesus was playing as Messiah probably was, John was no different than the other disciples of Jesus because there was a disconnect there. John probably expected, at least in terms of type, a completely different kind of Messiah. John was not divine like Jesus. John was a human being. And he was like many in Israel. He probably had a certain understanding of what this Messiah was going to do once he did come. And the problem was that John didn't see Jesus doing the kinds of things that John thought a Messiah was going to come to do. John prophesied that the Messiah was coming and that when the Messiah come, uh, was, had come, he was coming in judgment, in judgment. The winnowing fork is in his hand and the ax is laid at the root of the tree. That's the way John prophesied the coming of the Lord. Remember Matthew 3? Jesus called the Pharisees and Sadducees a bunch of snakes, or John did. And then he said to them in verse 11, 
I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's a reference to judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And John wasn't seeing any of that coming from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure John was fine with an occasional healing miracle here or there. I'm sure he was perfectly fine with Jesus healing leprous bodies. I'm sure he was perfectly fine with an occasional raising a dead body back to life. That was a great thing to do, according to John, I'm sure. But when was Jesus going to get around to kicking the snakes out of the government palace? When was Jesus going to get around to throwing Herod down the cliff? When's Jesus going to clean out the corrupt leadership down there at the temple? When's he going to lead Israel back to prominence and military glory? When is he going to start getting the Israeli militia back together again to lead the riots and to lead the guerrilla warfare that would lead to the overthrow of Rome? And when, by the way, is Jesus going to come down here and get me out of this God-forsaken jail? Boys, I'm not sure this is a guy I was preaching about. So go and ask him. Ask him to his face. Are you the one who was to come? Tell him his role is not turning out like I thought it would. He's not operating like I had imagined that he would. So ask him if we need to be looking for someone else. Ask him if when I get out of here, I need to completely recalibrate my preaching and prophetic ministry and point people to somebody else. When John's messengers finally <clears throat> caught up with Jesus, posed the question to him, Matthew tells us here in verse 4 that Jesus answered them, you go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. Now, every word in the response of Jesus is important because he practically draws every single word in that response straight out of the prophecies of Isaiah. So he's kind of telling the emissaries of John, you go back and tell John to reread the book of Isaiah because I'm not the one who's not properly understanding the role of the Messiah. I think he and everybody else is. And Jesus gives a description of what life in the Messianic kingdom is supposed to be like. So what Jesus is doing here is he's offering John direct biblical proof that he is in fact the Messiah, that he's not a mistaken notion. He's telling John, look, judgment is coming. There will be a time for judgment, but the time for judgment is not now. The time for salvation is now. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation, not of judgment, though that day is coming. We need to put the horse in front of the cart. 
I'll conquer principalities and I'll conquer powers and I will deal with snakes and I will deal with corrupt rulers and corrupt religious leadership. That will come one day, but first I need to conquer human souls. First, we need to extend an offer of repentance and forgiveness and eternal life. So don't get discouraged. I'm right on schedule. Blessed is the one, Jesus said, who is not offended because of me. In other words, what's Jesus saying there? He's saying, blessed, happy, content is the one who's not scandalized because of who I am and because of the way I choose to work. Which, by the way, will often be different than your expectation. And that's the cause of our disappointment. When Jesus doesn't show up in ways that we consider on time, and when Jesus does not move in ways that align with our own sense of expectation of how he should move and what he should do, that's when discouragement creeps in. And when discouragement reigns long enough, that's when you begin to doubt. The last statement is important. Blessed is the one who will not be offended because of me. And it's important because it's a reminder that doubts, thirdly, will inevitably lead us to one of two destinations. Where doubt is present, there's really only two alternatives. Either your doubt will draw you closer to the truth, or those doubts will act as a barrier that'll pretty much keep you in a life that's without purpose, without direction, mostly full of frustration and confusion. Look at what Jesus says to the crowd after John's messengers had left. Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So he kind of just issued a little subtle rebuke back to John, but then he shows what he thinks of John in terms of his faithfulness and in terms of his obedience to the call of God. Among those born of women, in other words, every human being that's ever lived, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. That's just a remarkable statement, man, that elevates John to this uh, top tier of most significant people who have ever lived. Because Jesus calls John up to that point the greatest man who ever lived. Even in the face of his doubts, John was bold, John was courageous, John was daring, John was faithful. God called from birth to perform this once in a human history role. And yet Jesus makes it clear that even, here's what's so remarkable about that statement. Having isolated and elevated John to a position of prominence, Jesus then says, however, even the newest, weakest, least, no-name kingdom believer today is greater than John the Baptist. Now, why would Jesus make a statement like that? Because those of us who follow Jesus today, we know things that John never came to know. We know about the suffering of Jesus. John would die before the cross. We know things about the love and the mercy of Jesus toward wayward sinners. 
demonstrated through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. John missed the suffering of Jesus. He missed many of the miracles of Jesus. He missed the human touch of Jesus. He missed the resurrection of Jesus. He missed the power and the leadership and the gifts of the indwelling Holy Spirit that came after Jesus' ascension to the church. He missed the birth of the church. John never got to participate in the work of the church. And so because we have experienced all of those things that John never got to experience this side of heaven, Jesus actually says that we have a more privileged place in the kingdom even than John. And that's why it's so important when you find yourself in a position of doubt to let those doubts drive you to Jesus. Don't let them wall you off and don't let them shut you down. Take those doubts to God and watch God work with them. John was smart enough to take his doubts to Jesus, not to other people about Jesus. He took his doubts to Jesus. And we don't know the outcome in terms of how John processed that, but I have a feeling that when those emissaries came back and relayed their conversation with Jesus, it strengthened the faith of John. It strengthened the resolve of John. It drove him to a deeper understanding of the truth of the gospel. Sad thing is, it doesn't always do that. Luke adds these words in his account of this passage in the seventh chapter of Luke, verse 29. It's a a parenthesis. Luke adds it almost parenthetically. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. And so there were several in the crowd listening to Jesus unpack this truth to the emissaries of John. And probably not all of them were sold on the person of Jesus Christ and on the work of Jesus Christ. And yet, after making this testimony, the Bible says there were two distinct responses because there are only two responses when it comes to doubt. Some heard the gospel first from John and later now from Jesus, and they responded with faith. I mean, their doubts were were broken up like storm clouds eventually. And the radiating light of the gospel came in and, and they were saved. Their faith overwhelmed their doubts. They believed and were baptized. But then there were others like these Pharisees that Luke goes out of his way to name. And their doubts just got more uh, powerful, more numerous, more ominous. Their doubts became a greater impediment. And they walked away from Jesus. They stayed in bondage to their doubts. They were offended by the suggestion that they needed a greater righteousness in order to be 
right with God. They were offended at statements that Jesus made like he did in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. They needed a deeper righteousness. Not a works-based righteousness like the Pharisees were preaching. No, they need a righteousness that could only come from God to us as a gift. We needed a righteousness that could come by faith. These Pharisees and others like them, man, they had an excuse for everything. John, the Bible teaches, was what we call an ascetic. In other words, he was a simple man. He lived on a diet of locust and wild honey predominantly, and he wore a coat of camel hair and had a simple leather belt and simple leather sandals. He was not a fashionista. He fasted. He abstained. He talked about sin, and the Pharisees looked at a guy like that and said, he's entirely too gloomy. He must be full of the devil. Jesus, on the other hand, partied, amen, in a righteous kind of way. He loved get-togethers, he loved festivals, he loved eating together with people, and he did that. Many of them considered low life, scum, tax collectors, and sinners. Jesus got together with people like that, and he talked about forgiveness, and he talked about salvation, and they looked at a guy like Jesus, and they said, well, he's just too improper. He's a drunk, and he hangs out with drunks. Jesus is a friend of sinners, that's right. But the problem with the Pharisees is they didn't think they were sinners. They didn't think they needed a savior. And so Jesus was no friend of theirs. And they refused to repent. Many people just like that today. Nothing wrong with doubt as long as you don't dwell in it. There's something wrong if you live in persistent doubt. That's not the way of God. But there's nothing wrong with having occasional doubt as long as it's a tool that leads you on a quest for truth. As long as you're not using doubt as an excuse to keep you from the will of God, to keep you from getting where God obviously wants you to go. God has said you will seek the Lord, your God, and you will find him if you seek after him with all your heart. Jesus said it even more clear. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But woe to those who continually live in the constant clouds of doubt. Why would you live in that kind of bondage when you don't have to? Jesus came and proclaimed a gospel of light and life, a gospel of salvation that's a free gift to everyone who simply receives it by faith. Why in the world would you reject freedom in order to remain in a dungeon of doubt. Listen, I get it. We all, listen, we live in a broken world. The world is broken. We all know that now perhaps as much as, if not more than we ever have before. The world's messed up. It's prone to disease and prone to decay, prone to disaster, prone to disappointment. 
And when it comes to matters of faith, when it comes to matters concerning the very claims of Jesus Christ, every one of us have a decision to make. It's a road that can only lead you to two places. You'll either choose to believe or not to believe. And that's it. But then as now, the situation is critical, the time is short, we all have an appointment with God. John probably had a distinct feeling that he may not get out of that jail alive, and he needed to know if Jesus was who he claimed to be. He needed to know if Jesus was the Messiah to whom he was pointing everyone he could find. And you need to be sure about that too. You can know that you have eternal life. So gather up your doubts and take them to Jesus. Don't take them to other people. Take those doubts to Jesus Christ. Listen to the word of God. Observe the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ponder the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absorb the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gaze and dwell on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Marvel and linger over the miracle of the empty tomb. Process all of that eyewitness testimony about Jesus. Because all these things John writes in his first letter have been written so that you may know that you have eternal life. Luke says, I've written these things to you that you may have absolute certainty of the things that you have been taught. That's where God wants you to live. In the freedom of assurance in the freedom of conviction and the freedom of courage. So for many people today, just as was the case with John centuries ago, as was the case with our friend Thomas a couple of weeks ago, for many, it's time to stop doubting and trust Jesus.